following is a vintage broadcasting publication presented by Frank Goss. The following podcast is entitled Dewey's Dumbing Down of the American Children. This series is concentrated on the state of public education in the United States of America. After looking into Horace Mann and understanding something of what he has done, we need to move on and consider another gentleman who is an icon in the field of education in the United States. His name is John Dewey. We're going to look into how John Dewey used public education to subvert liberty. First John in the Bible, chapter 2, verse 18, says, Children, it's the last hour. And just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have appeared. One thing that we can say is pretty common among these guys, Dewey and Horace Mann and Robert Owens, they didn't like the idea or the concept of religion or God. They gave a little bit of credence to it because of the idea of the American culture. It was founded on Judeo-Christian principles, but that does not mean that these men respected it or adhered to it. They had to do it because the culture held to it. In 1933, Roy Wood Sellers joined together with a man named Raymond Bragg to write and publish a manifesto which was essentially a declaration of war on the culture of Christianity in the United States of America. Imagine that, 1933. And it's been said not to have been a creed as much as it was an articulated point of view. It's a document entitled, The Humanist Manifesto. And as of 2021, it has undergone two revisions and exists today as Humanist Manifest Number 3, which was put out in the year 2003. John Dewey helped author that document, the initial document. It's been argued that this was not a religious statement, but that this is an intentional misrepresentation of the truth as declared within the manifesto itself. Such a denial that this is a religious statement, in light of the facts, should serve to reveal to us a great deal regarding the character and the mindset of the original signatories and those who continued to support the ideas that are expressed within this manifesto. Liberals of this nature will misstate fact in the face of truth, even when written truth which they have agreed to witness with their signatures and helped write. They all agree that there are no absolutes, so truth is an abstract. It's a human invention. And what may be true for you may not apply to me. Humanism is undeniably a religion. So although the original Humanist Manifesto contained only 15 statements in which religion was addressed 29 times when it was deemed to be an affront to the American public, the original signatory sought to deny that this was any sort of religious statement. If you follow the manifesto in the application, as well as its, its historical trail, it is easily seen that this was practically a doctrinal statement, a constitution, if you would, of sorts, that was fully embraced by many within the Unitarian Church in America, the church to which Robert Owen and Horace Mann were deeply affiliated and served as the governing religious principles that undergirded the newly established national public school system. At the time of its writing, the world was drastically changing. Ideas were pouring into American universities and seminaries that were written by Karl Marx, Charles Darwin, and higher criticism was flowing in from Germany. The social gospel movement was taking place. Rationalism and enlightenment were hot topics of the day. Progressive ideologies were flooding the American markets. And these were the ideas that animated these men. The leaders of our modern educational system were humanists in their beliefs. The Humanist Manifesto expressed in written form the foundational ideas and principles that served as the foundation and idea of our present-day educational system. 
God was ruled out of American education nearly 200 years ago from the moment of its inception in 1852 under the direction of Horace Mann. The Supreme Court ruling, Engel v. Vital in 1962, along with Abington School District v. Shemp on June 17, 1963, were simply reiterations of this position that was stated at its founding. And they should not be seen as a surprise. The truth be known, fundamental religious views crept in through the direct influence of Christian teachers and administrators, but most definitely not due to the original purpose of the founders. We cannot divorce historical events from the establishment of the ideologies that served as the impetus behind the institution. The foundation is what we must consider. The Industrial Revolution was in full force and was fueled not by religious zeal and sound theology, but by incredible capitalistic greed, a deep sense of nationalism and destiny, and an incredible growth in industry. Industry required laborers, qualified, trained, and skilled men and women who could engineer, build, and run the machines and manage the processes. Agrarian society was shrinking as great masses of humanity were being concentrated in the northeastern area of the United States. Industry had to be fed with workers. There had to be a tectonic shift of thought among the people. The only real way to achieve this was through a concentrated and united effort to redirect both the values and beliefs of the people. Before this period, Americans were very pious and were deeply religious, and this cannot be denied. God was elevated above all governmental and institutions in society. Worship was central within the American nuclear family structure, and churches were seen as central to each community. For the needs of industry to be met, there had to be a changing of the paradigm. The fastest way to establish a profound change was through the mind of a child. Robert Owen came to this conclusion after his miserable failure at communism in New Harmony, Indiana. Horace Mann realized this in his quest to establish public education in Massachusetts. Congressmen and senators realized this as they felt the widening and expanding appetite of industry. The titans of industry, the robber barons, were pleading for labor. And they loved the idea that we could take the children and train them to be laborers. It was John Rockefeller who said, I would prefer to have laborers above and beyond thinkers. This effort was primarily focused on the northern states as industry was heavily concentrated in the northern areas at that time. It was this effort that played a fundamental part in the creation of middle class America, the middle class that we have known and embraced for the past 150 years. When humanist John Dewey and his disciples took over the emerging government education system created decades earlier, in order to advance collectivism, the fledgling system was still in its infancy. But by the time John Dewey died in 1952, it was a well-oiled collectivist machine that would obliterate America's religious, intellectual, and political heritage more effectively than any force previously imagined. Dewey is often lauded as the founding father of progressive education that now has more than 85% of American children within its grip. Although he wasn't alone, he stood on the shoulders of a few other collectivists, Robert Owen and Horace Mann, as documented earlier in this series. Dewey certainly deserves much of the credit or blame for unleashing on the United States his humanistic views. Like Horace Mann and Robert Owen before him, Dewey had ulterior motives when he dedicated himself really with a missionary zeal to the cause of educational reform. Fortunately for future generations and historians, he was a prolific writer who cranked out seemingly never-ending streams of essays and papers and manifestos and articles. He let people know his views and objectives. So it's not a mystery. We're not guessing at what he meant. He pretty much stated what he was doing. 
Dewey wanted to fundamentally transform the United States. Does that sound remotely familiar? Barack Obama came to office with the exact same desire to change fundamentally the United States through its political structure. So now you have Robert Owen, Horace Mann, and John Dewey working literally in concert to bring about a fundamental change from the ground up through education. In Dewey's case, he had a distinct and defined model on which he could build his own design. He wanted the American educational complex to emulate the Soviet Union's educational methods. The educational methods that were established in the Soviet Union were Prussian in their origin. The Prussian educational method was established by the ideas of Robert Owen, who built a community called New Harmony in Indiana. So for Dewey to do what he was wanting to do, he believed a total transformation. A fundamental change in education and society was required, literally changing the conception of what constitutes education. And he wrote this in his paper, The Relation of Theory to Practice in Education, in 1904. Education must bring about a new social order, was his argument. As was the case with virtually all of the key figures involved in the government takeover of education, John Dewey rejected Christianity and even the very existence of God. He also rejected the individualism and the liberty that defined America up to that point, with its strong protections of God-given rights and private property and free market. John Dewey worked fiendishly to continue the severing of America and Western education's Christian roots. The process, which we already have seen, was launched by Robert Owen, the Welsh communist, whose commune in Indiana failed. It formally took root under Horace Mann, however, in Massachusetts, when he imported the Owen-inspired Prussian model of education. But that was all just the beginning. By the time John Dewey and his disciples worked their magic, the scheme would culminate in a nation in which the overwhelming majority of high school seniors violently reject the biblical worldview, and in which most young people describe themselves as socialists. Today, the majority of millennials suggest that they would prefer to live in a socialist state. On top of this, the system would produce, the system under John Dewey would produce a nation in which less than one-third of those same seniors would even be considered proficient in reading and math. According to federal data gathered by the National Assessment of Educational Process, seniors in our day may even struggle reading what is on their diploma. Interestingly though, Dewey was from Burlington, Vermont the home of American socialist Bernie Sanders. And like Bernie Sanders, John Dewey styled himself a democratic socialist. But decades before Sanders visited the Soviet Union on his honeymoon, while it was slaughtering and torturing dissidents, Dewey made a pilgrimage to Moscow under Bolshevik rule. Of course, Karl Marx called for government control of education in the Communist Manifesto, and so the Soviets complied. Lenin embraced the concept decades earlier. Owen and other communists did the same thing. Dewey picked up where they left off and fervently advocated total control of all education by the state, with even more passion than Sanders does today. To control the people, the road begins in the minds of the children. This was Robert Owen's biggest complaint after the failure he experienced in New Harmony, Indiana. The people were just not properly educated, he said. And this was the direct focus and aim of Horace Mann in Massachusetts. And this was the purpose and intention of John Dewey, to have the children educated to understand and embrace and live the communal ideas. An example of indoctrination, ideological education, can be seen in the growth of a circus elephant. 
While the elephant is young, you keep him chained to a stake in the ground. You restrict his movements and you control his activity. You care for him and you feed him, you wash him and you watch over him, talk to him real nice. But after a time, you're able to unchain him. And you know what? He will follow and obey you. He won't move too far from the regulated areas where he was moored. Why? Because he was indoctrinated in such a way that he was absolutely convinced that he could not go any farther. Indoctrination starts in the mind. And to change a nation, the road travels through the mind of the student. Writing in the far left magazine, The New Republic, Dewey provided glowing reports about the communist system being imposed upon the people in the Soviet Union. He was especially pleased with its so-called educational system, and he celebrated the way it was instilling a collectivist mentality in Soviet children. And he wrote this in his paper, Impressions of Soviet Russia and the Revolutionary World, which was published in 1929. Despite his fondness for Soviet totalitarianism and the communist ideology behind it, Dewey would publicly criticize Joseph Stalin and Stalinism later in life. His model for the communist United States, by contrast, was outlined in Edward Bellamy's 1888 book entitled Looking Backwards, a fantasy about a wonderful collectivist America in the year 2000 where all private property would be nationalized by the government. Bellamy was the son of a Baptist minister. He was a dedicated socialist who tried to marry socialism with communism. But the two ideologies did not mesh, so one idea had to be drastically modified. The Christianity of his day was so far strident and repressive that he had to divorce himself from it. His modifications to the Christianity of that day fell more in line with liberation theology in our day. And this is essentially an attempt to marry Marx and Jesus. And that's akin to mixing oil and water. It doesn't work. But ideologically, this did not matter. It served the purpose for which it was intended. To embrace collectivism, a great deal of truth regarding God and humanity has to be ignored, denied, or even ridiculed. The facts served to repress and confuse. So Bellamy, Horace Mann, Robert Owen, and now John Dewey stayed the course and they persisted in their views, regardless of what facts stated. Dewey's socialist views were hardly a secret. In his paper, Liberalism and Social Action, he wrote that the only form of enduring social organization that is now possible is one in which new forces of productivity are cooperatively controlled. Organized social planning, he continued in his well-known 1935 work, is now the sole method of social action by which liberalism can realize its professed aims. In common with virtually all of the totalitarians of the 20th century, John Dewey understood that the education of children would be fundamental to achieving utopian ideals of collectivism. And we must make note that totalitarians tended to be utopian in their view, which is a religious notion. Education is a regulation of the process of coming to share in the social consciousness. The adjustment of individual activity on the basis of this social consciousness, Dewey explained, is the only sure method of social reconstruction. In his important 1898 essay, The Primary Education Fetish, Dewey argued strongly against the then heavy emphasis on reading, writing, and arithmetic in the younger years. That tended to produce a highly literate, independent-minded individualist with faith in God and freedom at a young age. It tended to build a character that was planted in a certain understanding of life. And this, in his estimation, was not at all conducive to a collectivist utopia, obviously. Instead, Dewey thought the main focus of education during these precious early years should be socialization and emphasizing collectivism. In particular, the reformer wanted to ditch reading and writing in the primary grades in order to concentrate on giving the children 
habits of thought and action that he believed were required for effective participation in communal life. An astute operator, Dewey recognized that the liberty-minded and overwhelmingly Christian teachers, taxpayers, and parents of America of that era would never knowingly support his radical education and political ambitions if they understood what they were. Change, he stated, must come gradually. He explained in that same essay, to force it unduly on the public would compromise its final success by favoring a violent reaction. So, instead of going to the American people, Dewey decided to go see Mr. John D. Rockefeller, the oil magnate. Rockefeller was giving away unfathomable amounts of money for educational reform, particularly through General Education Board, which was a philanthropic outfit. And this gave Dewey millions of dollars to create what had been called an experimental school to try out his ideas. A school that successfully cranked out reading disabled collectivists. In his crucial 1916 work entitled Democracy in Education, Dewey argued that the education he envisioned would be the process through which the needed transformation of culture may be accomplished. And so he went about taking control of the educational system. Having failed as a primary and second, secondary school educator, Dewey's effort to seize control of the school system began with a leadership position in education at the Rockefeller-funded University of Chicago. Later, he went to Columbia University's teacher college. From his ivory tower perch, Dewey would train up legions of teachers and disciples to unleash on an unsuspecting United States and carry out his vision. It worked. Dewey became the founding father of America's progressive public education system, and his ideology went mainstream. Another Dewey achievement while in academia was resurrecting quack methods for teaching reading that had been discredited early in the 1840s under Horace Mann in Boston. That incredible saga, the root cause of, Americans, of America's current illiteracy crisis, will be the subject of a future piece in this series perhaps even more important and far-reaching than being able to advance his views on education and policies, was Dewey's influence on the religious views of Americans. Dewey was a self-proclaimed humanist, with his public declarations on religion fusing atheism with communism and socialism. His success on this front is unquestionable and will be the subject of an upcoming piece in this series as well. In fairness to John Dewey, Robert Owen, and Horace Mann, and the lesser-known characters behind the government takeover of education. They did not have the 20th century in the rearview mirror, as we do. It might be said in their defense that they really didn't know the ideology of collectivism when implanted would lead to the untimely deaths and mass slaughter of literally hundreds of millions of people. Now, in the 21st century, we should know better. Continue with us as we seek to understand why still Johnny can't read. This is Frank Doss with Vintage Broadcasting. We do appreciate your participation in listening to our broadcast. We hope that it benefits you in some way and that you'll continue listening in the days to come.